Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com. I'm your host, Todd Curtis. March 8, 2016 is the second anniversary of the disappearance of Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. And on that day, I had a series of interviews, including the following interview with the radio station CGOB of Winnipeg, Canada, where we discussed some of the issues still surrounding this investigation. Two years ago, a Malaysian airliner disappeared. And it became front page news for months. But as the months went on, it became more and more apparent that this flight, despite Geraldo's best efforts to find it on some remote island, tucked away in the bushes, was not going to be found safely. And now we're seeing and we're finding that pieces of debris are washing up on African shores. When we talk about stories like this, we often like to tap into the expertise of Todd Curtis, who is with the AirSafe Foundation, formerly worked for Boeing and for the U.S. Air Force as well. Todd, welcome back. Good to talk to you again. Well, thanks for having me again. Uh, so it turns out that that pieces of this airline, or what's believed to be this Malaysian airline, are now washing up on, on African shores. Do, do you believe that this is what it is? Well, I believe that uh, the pieces that were found, the first one being the flapper on back in July, which was determined to be from MH370, totally consistent with the models of what the experts say, where the parts would have drifted had the aircraft impacted the ocean. So the first piece being found in July confirmed that. These latter two pieces, one of which was also on Reunion Island, and of course the piece you mentioned in Mozambique, it's still to be determined whether or not they were from MH370. But if they are, then that would still add more evidence to support the theory that the aircraft impacted somewhere in the ocean and probably was not intact after impact. Is there any way to determine from any of this debris, Todd, what ca- what would have caused this plane to crash? Well, the one piece that has been extensively analyzed, they haven't, uh, they meaning the Australian and the French authorities who also investigated the piece, uh, none of those uh, groups, nor has Boeing, come out with any statements saying that the Flapron gave any, any evidence as to the sequence of events that led to the uh, Flapron being separated from the aircraft. But again, the fact that it was not connected to the rest of the wing uh, means that whatever happened to the airplane, uh, at the end of its flight, it was no longer intact. What what might have happened to this aircraft? What are the possibilities? Well, given the very, very scanty evidence that was available, has been available for two years, uh, four basic scenarios that I came up with just a few days after the event really haven't changed. And uh, the four basic scenarios that would fit what we have seen evidence-wise would be some sort of hijacking, either hijacking done by... Uh, someone outside of the the crew, a traditional hijacking, in other words, or a hijacking that was done by someone who was intimately familiar with the procedures of the airline and with the capabilities of the aircraft. That could be a flight crew member, that could be someone else within the airline, or someone else with deep knowledge of how uh, this airplane operates. And the third scenario is more or less a traditional accident, one where there might have been multiple or even simultaneous failures of systems, where the situation was so overwhelming that the flight crew had to do whatever it took to keep the airplane flying. And during that time, they never communicated with the outside world, which, again, is not unusual. In an emergency situation, the priority is to continue flying the airplane and to find a safe place to, to land. Communicating with the outside world is very low on the list of priorities. And the fourth possibility, and again, 
I must emphasize, these possibilities might be in combination. The fourth possibility is, for whatever reason, the flight crew was unable or unwilling to do any changes to the aircraft's airspeed or altitude for the several hours uh, before the fuel ran out. Hmm. Either way, uh, I mean, you know, these people are never going to be found. Is there, is there, there's no real chance of any remains ever being found at this point, are there? There's actually a very real chance of that happening. Really? Uh, uh, let me take you back. So, yeah, to how, so, yeah, so explain how that works then, Todd, because you would well, think that, um, that the, most of these, most of the remains would have disappeared by now, but you say not. Well, not necessarily. Uh, back in 2009, there was a A330 from Air France, and an A330 is roughly the same size of as a, a triple seven which went missing on a flight from Brazil to France, missing over the Atlantic. And unlike MH370, there was actually a communication information being sent out from the airplane uh, that gave them enough of a heads up as to where the airplane was, where they were able to go out there into the deep ocean and find the aircraft at the bottom of the ocean. It took a number of months, and it was quite some time before they were able to recover a lot of the wreckage and most of the people on board the airplane. And because it was at such a a deep uh, location in the ocean, while there would have been biological processes that would have led to decomposing of, of the bodies, they were still largely intact. So I hate to be a little bit um, a little bit uh, graphic there, but um, the remains of passengers, if there's still any from MH370, may survive for several years relatively intact. So if the aircraft is found in the next few months, I'm confident they'll be able to, like in the case with the Air France flight, recover most of the victims. Wow. Despite ocean currents and, and all the other variables? Well, it also depends on the dynamics of how the airplane went into the water. Um, oh. Going again back to the case of the Air France aircraft, it was in what's called a stall. That is, the airplanes more or less, instead of flying directly into the ocean nose first, sort of pancaked into the ocean in a nose-high configuration. So when it hit, the forces were downwards on, on the people and on, on the fuselage, which led to the, a lot of the wreckage being in relatively uh, compact uh, situation at the bottom of the ocean. It's unclear what the dynamics uh, were with MH370. If there's some sort of controlled water landing, uh, it'll be one situation. If it was very, very uncontrolled, let's say a very sharp, uh, very high-speed vertical dive near the speed of sound, it could be a very fragmented situation. Again, until they find uh, evidence of the aircraft on the bottom of the ocean, and by the way, I'm assuming that it was, uh, it ended up in the bottom of the southern Indian Ocean, unlike some of the theorists out there who say otherwise. I fully believe it's in the ocean. If they do find it, uh, only then will they figure out whether or not it was a relatively intact situation when it hit the water or whether it was heavily fragmented upon impact. And if, if the cabin is largely intact, then, then the remains of those passengers will be retrievable, or at least it's they'll we'll know where they are anyway, whether they're retrievable or not. That's correct. And in spite of the fact that it could be as much as six kilometers deep under the ocean, I think uh, much more so than the Titanic even, that if the uh, wreckage is found, there'll be uh, not only the technological capability to, to go retrieve the wreckage, but a uh, political and social uh, uh, impetus to make that happen. I'm sure the victims' families, especially uh, China, which had most of the victims, and several of the other countries that have that had victims there would be very keen on having as much of the aircraft and the victims recovered as possible. 
Yeah. Uh, well, the Chinese have the resources to do it. And as you said, there will be a political demand to do it. And uh, yeah. again, this is a situation with MH370 that is unlike any other major aviation event of the last several decades in the scope of the search effort, in the number of countries that are involved who are also uh, willing and able to take a major role in the investigation and the recovery. Um, typically, you might have one major country, let's say the United States or France or Japan, which takes on the bulk of the responsibility for the investigation and any other work that's involved. This is a situation where you have Australia, which is leading the search effort, China, which of course has its uh, vested interest in, in dealing with its citizens who were lost, the United States, which was the country of manufacture and certification of the aircraft, which has a very heavy interest in this. Also Great Britain, uh, which because of uh, their efforts, specifically the company in Marsat, the efforts of Great Britain were instrumental in narrowing the search area to as small an area as it is right now. Todd Curtis, always great to get your expertise on the show. Thank you so much for this. Well, thank you again for having me. Todd Curtis with the AirSafe Foundation. He formerly worked for Boeing and the U.S. Air Force. For more information on this event, please visit mh370.airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.